Welcome to Vice and Easy, your podcast for all things Miami Vice, with your host, Marina. Hello, and welcome back to Vice and Easy. This week, we'll get right into it. We are recapping Season 4, Episode 9, The Rising Sun of Death. Per IMDb, Crockett and Tubbs take on the Yakuza, the Japanese mafia, as they try to control Miami. A corrupt detective and a Japanese assassin on the path of revenge against the Yakuza leader there complicate matters. We open up with what probably is a super hot nightclub to this day, because this is how you know where the best nightclubs are. They're in an alley with a trash can on fire. (laughs) There's just a neon sign. To be fair, if it was like a little bit more secluded, it would be fire. But like you have, we've all gone to a nightclub like this. If not... Definitely worth your while. So we get in there, and there's this palatial spread of sushi. It looks like a really nice business dinner. We have an American businessman, Avery, having dinner with the Japanese businessman. You'll definitely recognize this voice, and you'll know it right off the bat. Follow me, Mr. Avery. It's um, it's really getting quite late. Avery, son, go enjoy yourself. It will be a night to remember. I assure you. Now that voice, that is James Hong, who has been in Purs, IMDb, everything. Now, when I also heard this, I was like, a night to remember. Hmm. Message. And again, he's saying, you know, he's he's trying to make excuses not to go. And they're talking about a proposed merger. You can tell that. He seems hesitant on the plan. Well, too late. Now he is in the hostess club. Now, I don't say I'm an expert. I have worked at a bar that was formerly a hostess bar. No windows. (laughs) So that's why I'm like, this could definitely be a hostess bar. There was also this bar in LA that if I were ever to open that was where I wanted to go because I love the exterior it was called Club Starlight in downtown and it had these like panels at the door but they weren't really windows that were like with stars in them I was like I remember I just drove by it and I like almost slammed my brakes I was like what is that building and then it went out of business like two months later so like a sliding doors, that's where my life could have been to like repurpose that into like, that's why I was like, do I make, would I make it a speakeasy or would I just kind of like make it grungy? But I also watched Tokyo Vice. I know the second season is that I have not caught up, but in the first season of Tokyo Vice, hostess bars are a recurring, well, recurring, recurring. Okay. <laughs> oh, what does that? I'm keep that in there. I will not edit that out. Recurring. Not just theme, but it was like a location. And the hostess bars in Tokyo Vice just seemed a little bit more, I don't want to say classy, but less in your face. So the other hostess bar that I inadvertently went to, I went with an old regular and with my boyfriend at the time. I didn't realize it was a hostess bar until I came back to work and told everybody where I went. And I was like, oh, that's where so-and-so, I was like, Oh, that's what those back rooms were for. I thought that was legit for karaoke. But, you know, there was a very nice lady who welcomed us. And 
I guess I was just kind of blind to the operation going on, but uh, I did kill it at karaoke there with uh, Hello by Lionel Richie. They really loved my rendition, and then my slow dance with my ex-boyfriend. So it was, I was, guess I was kind of shielded from that. Thank you to my regular. Like, I wasn't brought in there as that kind of a patron, but different vibes than what we're going into now. And what we're going into now kind of seems more like a burlesque club. You can... Now, again, I'm not 100% familiar with the rules of Miami. I have been to it 11. <laughs> so it's probably similar to California, where if there's nudity, there's no alcohol, vice versa. I should look this up. Um, but the outfits are really cute. But you can tell they're kind of going into like different archetypes. You have the cheerleader. You have kind of like an Amazon gladiator woman. But this is like the perfect song of the era that they could have picked. Fresh. It's so cheesy and weird, and I secretly love that song. That is like probably my ultimate Billy Idol guilty pleasure because, like, I enjoy most of Billy Idol, but like that one is always just kind of like a weird one, but it works so well in this scene. I took lots of gifts of their outfits, do not worry. They all looked so amazing, but that's why I was like, it doesn't seem, and like the guys are watching them on stage and like a hostess bar. I know how it worked, you know, like usually you have a table and they come to you, they hang out with you similar to bottle service, but like it's a little bit more subtle. So again, please feel free to correct. (laughs) I've never been to Hostess Bar Japan and um, I've only been to one in Koreatown, Los Angeles. (laughs) And then I want to buy one, but I'm still not that well versed in it. And you know what's funny? The one in LA that closed, I guess this this is kind of gossip time. Um, they didn't have a liquor license. So they were serving liquor, and this is what I heard, out of plastic cups. <laughs> they only had a beer and wine license. <laughs> Too funny. So whoever bought the Starlight or Club Starlight, uh, Godspeed to you. I really want to see what you do with that because I'm so curious. Or it's probably going to get torn down. But boo, but we have an episode to recap, and I have not been doing that. So let's get into it. So again, Avery... He's probably having the time of his life. We don't really see him. We see another guy in the crowd with a Diamante Bolo. I definitely took a picture of that. Then we see a girl blow sparkle dust. And then it cuts to the scene where Avery is now in the hot tub with two young girls, probably dancers. He... This is the courteous dialogue I've ever heard for, like, kind of setting up, like, a seduction scene. I do love the score, and I can let that play out, but, like, oh, right there. Oh, that's great. I kind of want to believe that he's a little bit more innocent, but, like, how innocent can you be if you're, like, with your fellow possible businessmen in a hot tub with two young girls. Then we see a shadowy figure behind the door as the door slides open and the gentleman who brought him in takes him out. (laughs) I need like a little uh... (laughs) So once our shadowy figure friend or our like basically the guy who escorted him into the club in the first place 
as he's choking Avery, or basically like strangling him in the club, he's not choking by putting his hands on him, but he has like a wire. I don't know how to properly phrase that. Murder, but, you know, specifically how that murder has been caused. The girls just pop out of the tub, of the hot tub. Like, there's no scene. There's no like, what's going on? Oh my God. They, they knew exactly what was going on. This was not their first rodeo. And with that, we see Avery drown underwater, and then we cut. Whew, that's a pretty rough cold open. And we open at the coroner's office. Coroner is making some really good points, and we see the head homicide, Haskell, with a politician. They are not really vibing with Vice so much, because Haskell is pushing back on evidence that clearly ties us to a murder. His reasoning is very auspicious. Let me see if I have a clip. I don't have a clip of Haskell pushing back that much just now, but I did skip over her. The clip I have saved of Crockett and Caitlin. Remember her? Uh, They have been relegated to the B-plot because they are going house hunting. Again, Crockett just doesn't have as much money as her. It brings us up like Okay, but in this post-crash market, the realtor is really happy to see someone who doesn't need a mortgage that can just pay cash. And Crockett and Caitlin do have a nice little scene where they look at each other and roll their eyes. But let me play the audio. Well, if that's not a sign, I do not have a clip that works. (laughs) I have a clip. But as you could tell, that is definitely B-plot territory. Let's get back to the A-plot. So again, furthermore, Haskell keeps pushing back, you know, when they found... Fresh water in his lungs. Hmm, how could that happen? Oh, Haskell proposes that he drowned in the Miami River and that his body washed into the bay. Very suspicious. Then another point comes up about Avery's watch. I was wearing an Ebel watch worth $15,000. It was an anniversary present and he never took it off. Somebody took it off for him. The divers fished him out. It was already gone. See the tan line? So? Fell off when he went over. The man had a blood alcohol level of, what was it, Doc? 0.25. You know, Haskell, for a homicide, Dick, you're awfully anxious to sweep this under the rug on an act of God. Why don't you go on back to Hassel and Hooker's and leave homicide to the pros? That's, that's enough. See, you can just tell by that clip, like, he's very, very, very much on the boat to just have this written off as an accident. When you have the coroner and Vice, and again, he's pushing back, like, why is Vice even here? Basically, Commissioner Vasquez, who's also conveniently running for mayor, as we can see by Haskell's pin. Also, Haskell, if he looks familiar, he's from Full Metal Jacket, because like, that voice also sounds familiar. We got some great voice work in this episode, I must, must, must say. Basically, Count, oh my God, Councilman. Vasquez says that Castillo wants to investigate to see if this is any connection that could go in a little bit deeper with organized crime, hence why Vice is involved. And basically, Haskell gets thrown out of the room to go have a cigarette outside in the hallway as he makes eyes at Trudy, who, in an amazing gift, is disgusted and turns away. But she is looking like a million dollars in a white pastel pink white and pastel pink 
outfit that like hugs every inch of her body. She does look like a million bucks. So back at OCB, they're going over Tanaka's file. Tanaka, a.k.a. James Hong, the guy who told him to enjoy his night. Haha, <laughs> oops, message. Turns out he has a pretty shady past, definitely with the Imperial Army and so forth. Does not look good. They're basically going over his Interpol file. Interpol also plays a role in this episode. I do have a question for you later on in this episode. Basically, Crockett and Tubbs want to go check the offices and see if they can dig up any dirt about like kind of the business that Avery and Tanaka were discussing before he met his unfortunate end. However, by the time Crockett and Tubbs get there, even before they get there, there's two guys cutting open the safe. What's going on? Ooh, and that song that actually was really great at this scene is Si Senor, The Hairy Grill by Yellow. And if this episode reminds you of previous Vice episodes, when I was watching this, I was like, oh, this has very Little Miss Dangerous vibes just with the lighting and the music. It is the same director, Leon Ichasso. So kudos to him because this is a vibe. Now I say that and a shootout's going to happen, but it's a very stylish shootout in front of a really cool building and we see the Testarossa pull up with blue lights in between two palm trees. We see a mysterious man in the corner. Then we see him engaged in the shootout, not against Crockett and Tubbs, but against the Yakuza who are there to destroy the files. May also add that this mysterious, very handsome man in the blue light is also driving a Pontiac Firebird. Pretty sweet, right? They aren't able to get his name or anything, but they do find a business card for a Japanese private eye with a personal telex number on a business card he drops. What's going on? There's also a great shot, and I took a picture of it, of Crockett looking at the business card with the street lights and the car lights blurred behind him just out of focus. And unfortunately, I was not able to get a clear picture of this business card. I will try. Hopefully, you'll see it. I'll post it on the Instagram. If I do, it kept coming out blurry because I was like, oh, I kind of want to try that Telex number. Not that that exists anymore. Telex was the predecessor for fax. So that is pretty cool to have. But mysterious PI with a firebird and a telex line, let's put them aside for a second because Castillo confirms that there was definitely the Yakuza involved after seeing the body. And we get... (laughs) Sorry. This makeup application was not meant to be viewed in 2024 with Zoom because it is... It looks like marker. It's not bad, but it's... Sorry. (laughs) Oh, my God. So, again, (laughs) I'm so sorry. Again, Castillo, he is in the know. The Yakuza began appearing in Hawaii earlier, but 
it was because the government was breaking up the crime families with, guess what, guys? It's our favorite act, the RICO. And since then, the Yakuza were kind of moving in to fill the void and getting their hands involved in any business they could, including prostitution and so forth, which we'll touch on in just a second. But I also forgot to mention that part of Tanaka's file when I was like, oh, he's pretty bad. Yeah, he was accused of war crimes. I forgot to mention that earlier. That is also why he's wanted. No, I have to stop saying wanted by Interpol. But that is why he is on Interpol's radar. Currently a very successful businessman in Japan. So let's check back in with the Yakuza. As Casillo foretold, bringing shame to the Yakuza would lead to whoever failed to have to atone and chops off a little finger. We don't have to see that, thankfully, but we know what's going on. Then we let's check back in with our B-plot. Crockett calls home. She says, Sonny Crockett, oh, Sonny Burnett's line. Mm. Message! And she kind of foretells her character's arc and season four and five just with this scene. Uh, listen, darling, you know that is the cover phone. You ought to at least make an effort to get the name straight. Crockett, Burnett, I'm married to two different men. Sometimes I feel like an adulteress. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, wait up for me and we'll cheat on your husband. Oh, sounds wonderfully skitsy. <laughs> I love you. Yeah, well, we both love you too. Bye-bye. Oh, well, she's very underutilized this episode. Just want to say, she could definitely be thrown into the mix a little bit here. But I digress. Let's go back to OCB, where Castillo is basically going over the Yakuza and what goes on if you fail your bosses, so have you. And I'll leave it to Zwitek to crack a joke. I'm glad I don't work for him. If you did, you'd never finger paint again. Bumbling Zwitek aside, who... Is this mysterious Japanese private investigator driving a Firebird with semi-automatic handguns and a telex number? What's he doing in Miami? Castillo explains that he was actually one of the the most decorated police officers in the Japanese police force until he attacked Agawa, basically our guy who strangled Avery in the hot tub, and then disappeared. So there's definitely something between them. But what is it? Castillo doesn't really want to investigate. He wants to focus on the Yakuza. Because earlier on, when he was talking with Vasquez and Haskell, he wanted 48 hours to be able to find a solid link between the Yakuza and Avery's murder and possibly many others. So Castillo, knowing that the Yakuza is involved in call girl organizations in Miami. Um, please go to the gallery, no children. And look at the ad posted. <laughs> the classified. Oh my God. Not only is it Showgirls Wanted, free rent, which I'm not going to read on the podcast in case children are listening, then the number, then diamond legs for all you guys who are into legs and looks and then just cuts off. I... Would love to see. <laughs> so they are going to send Gina and Trudy in to infiltrate 
and to see what's going on and report back. Rough or kinky stuff. And we wear our own costumes. Right. And look, we got our own line on all major credit cards, but we'd be very happy to share any kind of percentage through yours. Okay, first note is how do you as an individual have lines on credit cards? I'm... And this is for clients. So, like, Amex, like, oh, just... If a, if a customer has an Amex, how does this work as a singular person entity? Do they have their own LLC or S-Corp? I am very curious. I'm going to look this up and report back. We get a goon looking great in a trench coat who oh, empties their bags to check for badges, wires, knives, guns, what have you. They are clean. They are going to work. And we have a Gawa smoking a cigarette, sitting down, smiling like a goofball, smoking a cigarette, walking through the club as the Smiths, yes, the Smiths play. I think that it's a very interesting choice that the Smith song they're playing is Last Night I Dreamt That Somebody Loved Me. <laughs> that is very much big Smith energy, if you know what I say. And uh, because I live in Los Angeles, I'm more conditioned to dislike the Smiths because they're so overplayed. But I really enjoy the use of this song because... It really threw me off guard from what's going on. We see Haskell, of course, and Agawa, still smoking, basically trying to trying to do something shady. And basically Agawa tells him, like, hey, beat it, kitchen's closed. And he's like, oh, I'm not here to eat. And he makes eyes at Trudy. Trudy, remember, he was also making eyes at in the hallway of the coroner's office. Trudy also takes down her little eye mask. Like, she has the same thing that the girl had in the beginning, like the little, I don't want to say eyes wide shut. Basically, yeah, like the little eye mask. Like, girl, keep it on. You're undercover. Well, spoiler alert, the next scene, Gina and Trudy are tied up as Haskell is lying on the bed, basically onto them. And then Agawa comes in. Again, Agawa... Still not happy to see him. This is getting very interesting because we saw them butt heads a little bit. Well, remember, since Gina and Trudy are there undercover, they are being watched. The vice surveillance van is outside. And a satellite truck shows up along with Vasquez. Remember who's running for mayor? Vasquez mayor, 88. Castillo's really irritated by this because Vasquez wants exposure and this might not be the exposure he wants. So he gets Zwitek to activate Trudy's beeper and that will record everything going on in the room and then broadcast that back to the vice van. Let's check. You cannot do business in Miami without me. You're right, Haskell. We have one more little job for you to do. Haskell, what's he doing in there? Working on the U.S.-Japanese trade deficit. Your buddy Haskell's the bag man for the Yakuza. You gonna let us handle this? We want that transmission sent over the loudspeaker. Some film at 11 that would make, huh? Listen, a lot of people saw me come up the stairs. They won't remember when they find you face down in the bay like they found Avery. 
Do your job. Go to work. Haskell's history. Now, Trudy interrupts their conversation to let them know that the beeper has been activated and everything they're saying is being broadcast. Ooh, I don't know how that's going to go. And Castillo doesn't want to do like a full swarm. He just wants Crockett and Tubbs to go in there to get back Gina and Trudy and protect them. Now, our mysterious man, he's already there. Remember, he is two steps ahead. He, there's this great scene of, again, the hot tub. But it's the room that the hot tub is in with the koi pond. And after he takes out a few of Agawa's men, one of them falling into the koi pond, all oh, those poor koi, it's just such a beautiful stylized scene. Like, I really appreciate Ichaso's, like, the scope and the colors. And, like, I was really drawn into this episode. Uh, but again, this is also my style. And I'm also assuming this is your style, you know? <laughs> this is this is what we're here for. We're here for, like, the 80s pastiche. So by the time the Crockett and Tubbs are, get there... A few of Agawa's men have already been killed, and our mysterious man is gone. Now, that song might not hit as hard. I realize I'm playing it after the fact when it was actually the scene when Crockett and Tubbs get into the club. But that is another yellow song that is Moon on Ice. Now, let's stick with that blue theme because we are back at OCB where Castillo, like he tends to do every couple, a couple times a season, just sitting alone in darkness in his office. But he senses someone's presence. I know you're there. Come into the light. I get that he's had a long day, and furthermore, after all that, they do find the ties with Tanaka, with Avery, that basically the Yakuza wanted to do a hostile takeover of Avery's business. Avery was right to be hesitant, but again, his the lure of girls in a hot tub were too much for him. So I guess he's just taking it easy, and it is a great shot. I will say I keep going over how much I really enjoy this director because he just very much plays into it. But again, it's not just glass blocks. It's glass blocks illuminated blue with Castillo facing the light. So he's sitting alone in his office with his back to the window. Very scary. Oh, sorry, the back to the door. As you can see, our mysterious man, his shadow. Then we finally get a little bit more information because this is all really confusing. Like, if he's working for the Yakuza, why is he killing off Tanaka's men? Castillo is very confused and he's going to get answered. Why do you want Tanaka? Tanaka's a nationalist. Ultra right. Once the youngest warlord in the Imperial Army. Your people tossed him in the can after the war. Then all of a sudden, everybody started seeing red. It was communist this, communist that. 
So the OSS sprung him from prison. They wanted him to bust the communists in the labor movement. For that, he used the Yaksa. And a war criminal becomes one of the richest men in the world. What's your interest? For 40 post-war years, Tanaka style was the way that we did things in Japan. Now the moderates in his corporation believe he's unsound. I was hired to stop him. So his own board wants his head. Why approach me? And with that, he pulls out a picture of Haskell. Remember, this shady homicide head. Turns out that he was Tanaka's control officer in the group that helped get Tanaka out of prison from, I'm assuming, his war crimes. So this goes way back with American foreign policy and intervention. So it turns out that Fujitsu was also a close friend of Agawa before Agawa went to Tanaka. Interesting. This was hard for me to follow along in a good way. This is teaching me to speak a little bit slower. You can just tell by watching that scene. I'm like, wow, I am the complete opposite. And we were talking about this at work about presenting and public speaking. And I was like, my weakness, I talk too fast. I am fine with talking to crowds. I do not have as much stage fright as other people in my position. But when the crowd gets smaller and smaller, that's when I get the stage fright. But it's speaking too fast. And then I'm just watching Castillo, Fujitsu, and just how they talk at this pace that draws you in. And I think that's where it is. I think that speaking too fast is kind of a reaction to worry that people aren't going to listen to you that like oh well they only have to listen to me for like four seconds and that it's like I guess it's that feeling that you might not command the room if you take up too much space and time let's not get it too deep into this let's get let's get back to the plot this is when Castillo really wants to know more and this is when our mysterious man unbuttons his shirt. Surprise, surprise. Surprise, surprise. Guess what? Yakuza tattoo. How did you know? It was the way you went after Agawa. It was beyond simple police work. He was once my brother. I was starving after the war. Now, 
I should also note that if you've not seen Blade Runner, you might be surprised, but Castillo is going to speak more Japanese in this episode, but I don't want to spoil it. He is going to help. And he goes over to talk to Tanaka. <laughs> I'll just play it. Are you also a buffoon, Lieutenant? I can give you something that Haskell couldn't. <laughs> Sorry, I just love the delivery of that. So it turns out that Haskell was supposed to bring them our mysterious man. Hmm. So, Tanaka still wants him killed. And this is where Agawa comes into play. Remember, them being old friends as he's standing outside the beautiful house. Like, if you thought Castillo's house was beautiful, this is like 20 times that. Overlooking, it's like the little moat they have outside. Speaking of water, next scene, we finally cut to our samurai epic battle scene with our mysterious man, Fujitsu, sitting cross-legged on the ground while him and Agawa, both in full samurai garb, finally talk a little bit more and then hash it out in an epic samurai fight. I saved you from the streets. Now I have to save the honor of our clan. Sumido Shikumiya has no honor. You talk of honor. When you joined the police, you disgraced our clan. You know the penalty is death. You were the master. And I, the student, you taught too well. You once told me that those who stray from the path of righteousness must be destroyed. Now, I'm not trying to make fun of the situation, but did they both drive themselves dressed in the rain and then standing out in the rain? Did they bring a change of clothes? Let's get back to the fight. So I'm really enjoying the score of this entire episode. Some of it's a little cheesy, but it's not Jan Hammer. It's John Peterson. Yeah, it's a little bit of a bummer note. But let's bring the energy back up because Castillo is coming to the rescue. You kill him, he dies in honor. Kill me, can't you? Let him live in the agony of his own disgrace. And now he has... Listen to Castillo. Agawa is still alive. What's going on with Tanaka? Well, first let me bring up the fact that I was a little bit of a fortune teller in that instance. Call my network today. Ask about love, money, your destiny. Well, he clearly had a change of clothes. And he's all dry now after being in a torrential downpour for what could have been like 30 minutes. They're at Tanaka's house. Tanaka also sitting down, taking off his shirt. No tattoos, I may notice, maybe because he's the big boss. Pulls out a knife 
and we kind of can figure what's going on. There's a great picture of Castillo and our mystery man dressed in all black. And again, our mystery man was packing great outfit because he's in like a mock turtleneck, full assassin garb. Whereas Castillo with the t-shirt and the pants, the t-shirt was long sleeves. He also could have like had that assassin look going for him. And once again, I'm going to bring it back to the score because it really sets the scene when Crockett and Tubbs pull up. I'm not leaving my my boy Jan out of this, but I'll just give credit where credit's due. This is, again, any score pre like 2005 with any, you know, person of color is always going to be a little bit (laughs) questionable, but I really did enjoy this. Now, at the end of the episode, we have our mysterious man to basically sum it all up for us. You have arrest and trial. Yakuza have their own justice. It's a very different way that a death marks the end of an episode. But, yeah, let's uh, switch gears. In a surprise to absolutely nobody, the winner of this episode is Fujitsu, our mysterious man, who again is looking like a million dollars in his assassin's outfit that I've already mentioned earlier. I voted him and Castillo the best-dressed male duo. Now, him in his Interpol photo, also best-dressed, because I was like, usually Interpol, wouldn't they have, like, your driver's license, your passport picture on file? I'm like, how do they get this one of him just, like, staring stoically off camera? off into the distance just showing off those cheekbones. So, again, I've, I've said this before, I haven't actually watched more than a couple episodes of Nash Bridges, but I know that him and Don Johnson were on Nash Bridges together. So actually that might be an interesting rewatch. Um, it's just not really in reruns here either. And like, obviously I've already said my piece about why I find some scenes really off-putting, but now I'm, I just want to see San Francisco in the 90s. Best Dressed Women, again, duo Gina and Trudy at their job interview, because I really love Gina's, not that wig, that wig does nothing to her. She's a very beautiful woman. She does not need that. But I love Trudy's outfit, Trudy's necklace, and I love Gina's kind of like wrap dress, kind of like a kimono nod to it. And then my best dressed woman of the episode is going to be the dancer from the first scene of the hostess club or dance club, what have you, where Flesh for Fantasy is playing. And she is wearing the white halter bodysuit looking like a million dollars with all the jewels the drop tier, the teardrop earrings, the bracelets, the embellishments on her outfit, the mask, oh, looking like a million dollars. And then also Trudy looking like a million dollars in the hallway when Haskell makes eyes at her with the pink off the shoulder outfit with the white skirt and the white pumps. I love white pumps. I always heard that they were trashy, but Pamela Anderson used to always wear them and I love wearing them too. So good to see them on Trudy. And I love that she has her badge clipped in the skirt. Unfortunately, that kind of led to her being uh, tied up and uh, almost harmed by Haskell, but let's move on. Best decor interior. Naturally, I'm going to go with 
our fun hot tub slash koi pond room. <laughs> and then the best decor exterior, the hottest nightclub in the city with a trash can on fire and a white limousine pulled up to it. That is in LA, Miami, or New York. I don't know what it is. Hired goons. I should also give an honorable mention to Tanaka's goons. They were quite a well-dressed bunch. Now, I don't have any piping vice tea this episode. I do think it was funny, the casting-wise. I'm like, I'm not really sure. <laughs> the Yakuza here are all Japanese. But I digress. Music, of course I'm going to pick Flesh for Fantasy because I just think putting that song with those visuals and the women's outfits, just chef's kiss. This is exactly what I want in an episode of Miami Vice. So that was my test to see if that line can make it into the soundboard as a permanent addition, but I don't think the volume is high enough. It's just so comical to me. Just like the, oh yes, in the background. Oh, man. And it's hard because there were so many great quotes from this episode that were poignant. But am I going to stick to what I do? And I think I am. And if that's it, I'm going to give it to our man, James Hong. Are you also a buffoon lieutenant? Uh, And speaking of Tanaka, I really wanted to find out what the house currently looks like. But on Google Earth, The last photo was taken 16 years ago. It is super cool. It's in Coconut Grove off Anchorage Way, but I can't really see it from the vantage view of the street, which, boo. But I really want to know if they still kept that cool little moat they had in the back that Agawa was pondering on. And with that, we're wrapping up this episode of Vice and Easy. I just want to thank you all again for liking and subscribing on YouTube for subscribing on Spotify, for subscribing on Apple Podcasts and leaving five-star reviews, and for subscribing and liking wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, you can like and follow on all things social for updates on the pod and fun gifts and fun facts at Vice and Easy Podcast on Instagram and on TikTok. And with that, I am looking forward to seeing you all next week and continuing to live out the Caitlin Davies arc with you all. I've skipped ahead just to kind of like refresh my memory and uh, I'm really looking forward to having someone to talk to about this. <laughs> and it's funny because in my mind I'm like, wait, but this was happening in real time, like one week, one week, one week. I'm like, it's very funny. We'll talk about this more next week, but I look forward to breaking down next week's episode with you all. And until then. Hey man, Miami Wise is number one new show.